Hey guys, it's been a little while since we've had an episode with just the three of us. We've had some fantastic interviews over the past few episodes and we've had a lot of people actually send us messages and say how awesome they thought they were, but they also loved our commentary. So we definitely wanted to pop back in and keep you guys educated and know about what's good and what the options that are out there to you and just keep you up to date. So um, by popular demand, this episode today is a this versus that episode. We're going to break apart some of the most miscommunicated and misunderstood terms in the real estate and the lending space and world. So regardless as to where you are at in your lending knowledge, real estate uh, lending expert, real estate expert, newbie, I think you're going to find a ton of value in this episode because we explain a lot of terms and conditions that are confusing for people and break them down to be a little bit more digestible than what you would normally see or hear. Uh, and I think there's a couple things that you're definitely going to pick up and learn that you can use for the future. Now, with that being said, one of my favorite things to do on this show is to actually give away mugs. That's right. I like to give away mugs. It's a big thing here. And one of the ways that we do that is by giving away to somebody who leaves us a five-star review. And so if you want to get a Thrive mug with some coffee, make sure to leave a five-star review on iTunes after listening to the episode and sharing it to all your friends, of course, because uh, that's what keeps us going. Anyways, so today's episode right now, uh, we or sorry, today's review comes from uh, an individual named, oh, I don't know what her name is, but it's Ash McNeil. So Ash uh, says, my new favorite podcast. I'm loving these podcasts. Great resources for all current information, all the ins and outs from decades of experience. Thank you so much for creating and, and, and sharing. Thank you, Ash. We appreciate you. And thanks for checking out the show. We hope you love the This Versus That episode. As a reminder, uh, we are owners and partners at Thrive Mortgage Co., a team that focuses our time and energy on helping our clients to create wealth in real estate, providing you with an amazing experience. So if you want to find out more about your financial situation, send us a message or make sure to follow us on Instagram or do everything. And we'd love to hear from you. So without further ado, a new episode coming right up. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Enjoy the show. What's up, guys? You are listening to the YBR Remo Show, where we talk all things Vancouver real estate and mortgages, take boring topics, and make them interesting. Make sure to stay tuned to listen to everything you need to know how to put cash back in your pocket, create wealth in real estate, and simplify the complicated. And we're going back to something that uh, Dean and I did way back earlier this year. And if you haven't checked out that episode, definitely check it out. It was a 90-second roundtable on everything to do with rental policies. Today, we're doing a little something a little different. We're doing this versus that. And we, we found that there was probably about 50 topics we could do this versus that. But we're going to focus on the ones that are super impactful to you if you're a borrower, real estate agent, real estate investor, whatever the heck you are. These are things that are going to impact you day to day that we're just going to try and touch a little bit of information. And, and then we'll do a deep dives on all these topics later. Hey, guys. Yeah, these, these questions come up probably every single day. At least one of them get these questions probably five times a day. So um, we're going to bang these out in short order and uh, hopefully make it clear and concise for everybody. Yeah, I was just going to say these are very common questions, daily questions. So I'm looking forward to addressing these for the thousandth time. <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. But before we get into that, I really just want to talk for a quick second about the state of the market. And I don't want to date the episode too much, but... We're, we're right now, we're at the end of 2020, near the end of 2020. Um, 
We've had, well, a record year for our business and our team, record in the amount of families that we've helped and people that we've served. And it doesn't appear to be slowing down by any accounts right now. It just keeps, it seems to be going full steam into 2021. And things are just, just, yeah, it's not, it's not stopping. So I, I actually wouldn't mind taking a second to just touch on, uh, again, what you guys are seeing right now for, you know, what you're commonly working on in your files and some of the most, uh, the biggest opportunities at this moment before we get into this. I, for me, a lot of the same, like it's, it kind of sounds like a broken record. I I've seen, you know, realtor video after realtor video of market updates month after month. And it's the same thing. It's hotter than ever. Rates are getting lower than we've ever seen. Every month we're seeing a, a new benchmark in interest rates. So it's just a lot of the same. There's there's a great opportunity to get in the market, have a you know a, a much lower cost of borrowing and getting into a bigger home for, in a lot of times, the same price that they're paying now for their smaller home. So just a lot of the same in, in, is what I'm seeing. Yeah, and at the same time as there's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of challenges in, in the local real estate market with getting into the market with how busy it is and how low the inventory is right now. There were, I have a client that was writing on a property today and there were 80 parties through in one day to look at this home and they're expecting 30 to 40 offers. So, you know, we're seeing people that are, we're, we're updating their application, we're getting them all pre-approved, ready to go with their offer and they're missing out, missing out, missing out. So to see that, you know, already a third of the way into December is super, super uncommon. Typically the market slows down this time of year. So it's interesting to see, and I'm really curious to see what happens next year because uh, my understanding is that a lot of people are kind of holding off on listing currently. They're just kind of pausing, COVID's you know, lingering again, uh, and it's the holidays, right? So nobody really wants to deal with that. So if in the new year and into spring, if there's a, a big wave of listings, who knows, the market could uh, get pretty crazy again. Yeah, these are good points. I'm going to play the counter argument to what Derek said there, not from the how busy it is, because I'm certainly seeing it stay really busy here. It's not that we've seen you know more calls than usual. It's just that every phone call we get is someone that's very serious, which is great. Uh, and it is keeping things rock and rolling for good reasons, like you mentioned there, Dean. The flip side to that, uh, Derek, I've noticed lately that, and this isn't something new to us per se, but certainly it stands out lately, that listing agents and sellers are getting a heck of a lot more picky with with their offers and if um, if they're seeing you know four or five offers come through we've we've been pretty successful in a lot of accounts because our clients have been fully fully pre-qualified properly pre-approved they've got the letter they've got the video and all that stuff kind of stuff so I definitely want to make sure to to pay uh, make notice that it's not all drab it's not all bad and again assuming you're working with a team uh, like ours you're in a better position to proceed and and have some success so going forward into 2021 I, I think just kind of my my mindset and we'll touch more on this in future episodes is is just get ahead of the eight ball like right now, like right now, I think a lot of people don't realize that that you know, spring comes fast, especially. And if you guys are in the lower mainland in, in Canada, on, on Vancouver Island, uh, even the Okan uh, Okanagan and other parts uh, of the country, we're finding the spring tends to come sooner than than ever uh, these days. And I think that just has to do with the fact that everything is virtual. So get ahead of it now so you can start shopping in January and uh, and moving forward there. So anyways good little update there uh hopefully there was some something that can help you if you're listening to the episode uh but let's get into it guys let's let's just start rattling through it so the format we're going to do this versus that we're going to rattle through a bunch of items um each guy is going to try and and touch on a, a key point if the <laughs> if we haven't touched on everything by the by the time the third person gets a chance to jump in and uh, and we're going to move on so i hope you guys enjoy the episode and let's get right into it Lawyer versus notary. Dean, take it away. 
yeah uh, common question why why do some most people think to go with a notary opposed to a lawyer most people think it's cheaper to go to with a notary and what we found is that is quite uh not the case um, a lot of times it's they're the exact same price and what we found with a lawyer is typically you're gonna get better advice or you're gonna get actual advice. And, and what we mean by that is legal advice. So if there's ever an issue on a contract or anything in the terms of the agreement, they're gonna pick that up and they're gonna be able to give you their their advice on it and, and rectify the issue. And nothing against notaries, notaries do a great job, but if you're ever uncertain or you're not sure about what you're getting into, I always recommend a lawyer. And if it does cost you an extra $50, that's a cheap insurance policy in my opinion. Yeah. And I mean, we have some exceptional notaries and some exceptional lawyers that we work with so people can, uh, you know, make their calls and do their own due diligence. But we have a really good list of people. Um, the thing that you touched on at the beginning, Dean, was around the dollars and cents, right? People are looking for the cheapest. That is the hands down worst thing you can do. You get what you pay for. If you find the cheapest lawyer or notary out there, it is going to be an absolute nightmare. And you've just spent one, if not two months dealing with your purchase and inspections and getting everything lined up for it to blow up two days before completion is not fun and not worth it. Hands down, this is the place where the most files fall apart is the lawyer in the notary's office. And it looks, it makes everybody else in the process look bad where the reality is it comes down to a, a rock star team. Pay the extra bucks, pay the extra 200 bucks, work with an amazing lawyer and reach out to us if you need a recommendation because we've got some good ones that we can do. Really over and above that, guys, these, these, these lawyers do go to school for quite a long time to get the education. That's not to put down our notaries, of course. We have some fantastic ones. But, uh, you know, if you have a complex case, uh, interesting situation. Lately, I find uh, frequently with the new development properties, there have been a lot of legal questions that have come up. Certainly, in any of those circumstances, it makes sense to uh, go with a lawyer. But uh, as these guys mentioned, don't go based on price. Let's move on. All right. Property insurance default insurance life insurance holy cow you got to get all these different types of insurance i think it's just tipping the iceberg here i'll start it off really quickly guys uh property insurance you're buying a piece of real estate when you buy a piece of real estate you need to insure that property let's assume it's a house you need to insure it against fire uh theft uh, van vandalism, earthquake, there's a variety of different things that can occur. The lender wants to make sure that your property is insured in case something occurs. Derek, why don't you take away life insurance, man? Yeah, this is a very confusing topic for a lot of people. So life insurance, this is actually something that we offer on every single mortgage that we fund. We legally have to offer it. People don't have to take it. Some people already have insurance set up, but life insurance is typically something that's not going to benefit you. It's going to benefit your beneficiary, right? So someone that's sing single and is not really worried about their family and their kids, life insurance might not be as important. If you're maybe the main uh, income earner in your household and your, your wife is a stay-at-home mom and you have two kids, very, very important to have insurance in place because if something happens to you, you need to have your spouse and your beneficiaries left with enough money to get through life, right? So life insurance is to benefit your beneficiaries. Uh, it kicks in if something was to happen to you and your life is taken away, of course. Um, there's two different types of life insurance as well. Well, there's actually a few different, but high level, there's mortgage life insurance. So if something were to happen to you, your mortgage would actually be paid off, right? So it would benefit your spouse or whoever it might be because there's no mortgage on your property. Uh, there's separate life insurance that is not tied to your property. It's just a whole life policy. If something happens to you, a uh, lump sum of a certain amount that you've decided on and been approved for would be paid out. There we go. Boom. Default insurance. Dean, take it away. 
So CMHC, uh, that usually triggers somebody's memory when they're thinking, what is default insurance? So CMHC is a, is one of our largest insurers in our country. And then, of course, uh, Genworth is the other one. Um, there is a third one, Canada Guarantee. And these, this is a default insurance just from these three, uh, in, essentially, companies will provide it. And it's for the lender. So if you... If you miss uh, your mortgage payment or you get into trouble paying your mortgage off, the the insurer, CMHC in this case, would pay the lender all costs associated to getting their money back. Um, so that's what default insurance is. Uh, I know we've touched on this topic in, in previous episodes. The, the last thing I just want to touch on is like this is absolutely required if you're putting less than 20% down. So if you're putting less than 20% down, you have to have default insurance. Uh, if you're putting more than 20% down, this is where it could be an optional uh, product. And um, it's not it's pretty rare that somebody would choose to take default insurance if they're putting less than 20 or more than 20% down. There you go. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. Deposit versus down payment. This ever, almost, I'd say probably about 50% of the uh, people we talk to when they're buying their first home and sometimes their second and third home get this still mixed up. Uh, so, and I can understand why. So let's just get right into it. Uh, Derek, why don't you start this one off? Let's just, just explain what the heck a deposit is. So the deposit is something that's due on a purchase. So typically when you tie up or you get an accepted offer on a property, you usually have a week or so for subjects. So you're getting your financing firmed up, you're doing your inspection, you're reading strata documents. When that week is up, if everything has come through clean and you're happy, you would actually sign off and say, yes, I'm committing to buying this property. There's almost always a deposit required and it's usually 5% of your purchase price roughly. So a $500,000 property, you're typically putting up $25,000. A lot of people miss this. A lot of people find themselves on that very last day of subject removal going like, where the hell am I going to get this money from? We didn't have the conversation early enough. So that's a big part of what we do to make sure that the money is available because you do not want to be scrambling trying to find that when you've already removed your subjects. So that deposit, you actually give it to your realtor. I get this question all the time. People want to give me the money as much as I'd love to take it. It goes to your real estate uh, agent's trust account of their brokerage, and then it goes over to your lawyer and it's used towards your down payment. So that's the initial deposit. It's non-refundable. If you back out of your purchase, the sellers, it goes into court, but the sellers potentially could keep it. Um, the down payment as a whole, that's the amount of money that you're putting down on your purchase, right? So if you're doing 5% down on a $500,000 property, your 5% deposit of $25,000 could actually create your entire down payment. But in that exact scenario, if you're doing 10% down, you're going to have to bring more money to the lawyer's office to create your entire down payment. I got nothing to add to that. That was it. <laughs> well, well said. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Next one. Uh, leave some for the rest of us, buddy. Open versus closed term. Dean, why don't you start us off on the uh, the open side? <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty clear for most people. An open term means it's uh, it you can get out of that mortgage at any time with no penalties. So a lot of mortgages, pretty much every mortgage that a traditional. Uh, lender would provide is a closed term it's very rare that somebody would have an open term uh, what what typically would be considered an open term would be a home equity line of credit which we're going to touch on uh, later on in this episode those are typical open products where again you can pay that that mortgage off at any time with no penalty yeah, that's exactly it. Whereas a closed term loan, you typically have a, an actual timeline wrapped around that. Again, most commonly in Canada, the five-year timeline is what most people go for. 
we don't want to get into the back and forth as to the why or anything of that nature, but essentially you're locked to that product with that lender for that timeline. And if you want to leave that product in that one, two, three, four, five, seven, or 10 year term, you have to pay something called a prepayment penalty, which we'll touch on uh, later. And we've talked about in other episodes and such important consideration, but open versus closed. Almost everyone takes a closed term loan and it makes sense as to why, because you do definitely want to get that discount if you can. Uh, anything else you want to add to that, Derek? No. All right. All right. All right. Moving on, guys. Moving on to, to the uh, the next topic right here. Approval versus pre-approval. This is huge. This is huge. I know it sounds crazy, but again, it comes up every, I don't know, every single day. Derek. So pre-approvals do differ. It depends on who's telling you what a pre-approval is. So we'll talk about what we do as a pre-approval. When we do a pre-approval, we actually do a full detailed application. We're looking at credit, we're collecting all of your income documentation, and we're running the numbers based on a specific lender's policy to make sure that you, as the borrowers, are pre-approved for a purchase, mm -hmm. right? So that is essentially what a pre-approval is internally. We issue a pre-approval letter. You know exactly what your financing is going to look like before you even step out your door to go shopping. So that's a pre-approval. You haven't actually found the property yet, but we're running the numbers to make sure you're going to qualify and let you know what your options are. There we go. Awesome. Uh, Dean, do you have anything else to add to that one? No. <laughs> Derek's just taking the show here today. He's just, he's, he's taking it home. So an approval is when you actually have a firm mortgage in place. So this is now when we've actually written. So in a purchase transaction, we have a live offer. We've submitted your, your mortgage to a specific lender and they have now issued us an approval, which would come in the form of a mortgage commitment package. This now means you have the mortgage in place. We've confirmed a rate, a term, uh, you know exactly what you're getting and you're moving forward. And we're typically working on a few minor conditions to wrap that up. Um, that's an approval. Yeah, we can go even deeper and we can talk about conditional ver com approval versus complete approval. And this is just a quick snippet on that. A conditional approval is where a lender has agreed to the terms of the loan and they basically, more or less, they like what they see. They've given us a commitment with a rate and terms. And if you are able to complete those terms that are written, you will be fully approved. Uh, but again, that's going down a rabbit's nest, so we'll keep it as it is. All right, moving on. Let's get back. We're gonna get into fixed versus variable. We've talked about this plenty of times, but it's worth repeating, obviously, because it comes up on a daily, I don't know, an hourly basis, guys, would you say? Yeah, easy. I mean, everyone is so, everyone wants the fixed rate right now because it's so low and they think it's such a great option. So we are definitely having this conversation probably more than every hour right now. Um, so yeah, let's dive into it. Go ahead, buddy, take it off. So a fixed term. A fixed term is, or is essentially you're getting a rate, let's use 1.89, for example. Um, that rate will not change. If you took a five-year product at 1.89, you're gonna have that same rate for the entire five years and nothing will change. And now, if you wanted to break that mortgage, that's where we do see another significant difference uh, from the fixed to variable. A fixed interest rate is going to carry what's called an IRD penalty. Lenders calculate those differently. We've talked about this in the past and we'll, we'll definitely touch on this again, but a fixed rate penalty, an IRD penalty is going to be a, uh, typically anywhere from four to five times the size of what the penalty would be on the variable. 
Yeah, I think the key consideration here is that with a, a fixed rate mortgage, the interest rate itself never changes. It's based on a, a different parameter than a variable rate mortgage. Uh, with the variable rate, it's based on what we call a discount. So it's usually tied to the Bank of Canada's prime lending rate. The biggest consideration that I want to get to people is not to be scared of a, a fixed or a variable for that matter, but just to know that the difference, there's different uh, factors and considerations that impact these interest rates. And there's different strategies behind why you should go one. Any uh, anything else to add to that, Derek? No, I just say one of the the major benefits of the variable is you typically actually start off with a lower interest rate, so like you're saving money from day one. Of course, rates can change, and that's the risk that comes with it. Um, there are products out there that offer a fixed rate payment in a variable product. So as much as it's variable and the rate can change, they can set you up with a specific payment that won't change throughout the term. So that if you're scared of your payments going up, but you like the concept of the variable product, you can be set up with a lender with, with one of those products. Boom. Choices. I like it. Property taxes versus property transfer taxes. That's a lot to say. And there's a lot happening there. So uh, just to just to kind of summarize exactly, just a little bit of a, a breakdown. Property taxes are what you pay on the actual property that you're purchasing. So you're typically paying taxes that are covering expenses to the city, that's police, that's school, that's a variety of other considerations that are in there. And you pay that tax usually on an annual basis. You do have the option to add it in with your mortgage in most circumstances, but you can also pay it directly to the city. And you can choose to do that monthly or you can do that once a year. A key thing to know about property taxes is that there is a grant eligible in most situations if you live in the home and it's your owner-occupied property. You get to claim that once per year. You claim it yourself. You don't do it through your mortgage or through us. Property transfer tax varies based on province. I'll let one of you guys take that away. So property transfer tax is a, a one-time one time tax at time of purchase. Pretty well, everybody will just talk about BC, but everybody that's purchasing a property, unless you're a first-time buyer and you fit into a very, very small window, you're going to pay property transfer tax on the purchase price. So some of the exemptions are if you're buying a brand new property under 750, so you're buying it from the developer, you're not going to pay property transfer tax. Of course, there's GST involved in that. Now, if you're a first time buyer and you're buying something, it doesn't matter if it's brand new or resale. If it's under 500,000, you don't pay any property transfer tax. And then you have a small window up to 525 where you will pay partial. So a lot of people ask if that can be financed or rolled into the mortgage. It cannot. It's a cash bill. So it's in addition to your down payment and you pay it at time of completion. So you'll actually bring that money to your lawyer or notary and they will uh, disperse the money accordingly. It, one thing I should note, anytime you make a transfer of title, it doesn't just have to be a time of purchase. If you're pulling somebody off title and or somebody else is coming on, you could have to pay transfer tax again. Um, typically, if it, the purchase price is more than 1.4 million or the value is construed at more than 1.4 million, that's where you could see transfer tax. I, I personally just did this, so I, <laughs> it's not the best uh, bill to get, but it is what it is and everyone pays it. Yeah, another... Another note on that would be the fact that uh, this is for BC. Some provinces have different rules around this. You should be clear on that. Also, foreign buyers. Foreign buyers pay a much steeper property transfer tax uh, than your traditional citizen. The funnel foreign buyers tax. Yay. All right. Appraisal versus assessment. All these are making me laugh because they come up so much. These are great. Let's talk about uh, an assessment. D Derek, why don't you start off with this uh, property assessment? 
Yeah, when we ask people for a rough estimate of their value, they typically refer back to the assessment because that's probably the only reference that they have unless they've been speaking with their realtor or they've gotten an appraisal recently. So the assessments are released once a year. Uh, the values in those assessments are actually typically based on the previous years, the, the values, right? So the BC assessment, uh, it ties into multiple things. I, I believe property taxes are s somewhat intertwined with that. Um, based on the value of your home. So that's essentially your city's assessment of the, of the value of your home. Um, now the appraisal on the other hand is a lot more current. So banks, lenders, anyone that's giving you financing on a property, they are not going to take your assessment value into consideration because it's not overly relevant in today's market. So the appraisal, on the other hand, is a much more detailed report. You typically actually have to pay for it. There's licensed appraisers that are going to go out, come and see your property. They're going to compare it to recent sales that are similar to your home to justify the current market value of your home. Yeah. Appraisals are much more, uh, that would be considered true value, where those assessments, it is tied to your property tax. Your property tax is calculated based on what your assessment is. So if you get a low assessment in July, I'd be happy about that because that likely means your property tax isn't going to go up as much as it could have been. In some cases, your property tax could go down. Very rare, but it could go down. So um, yeah, those assessments are really nothing to, to get upset about. And if anything, you should be happy. Yeah, I think one of the biggest considerations when it comes to appraisal, just to touch on that last little bit there, is that as a client, even though you pay for the appraisal, the appraisal is technically not yours to own. Uh, the bank that's financing you uh, does actually own the appraisal, so you are not entitled to the report. I don't want to go too far down the nest as to the whys and the hows, but just a key thing to know. The other thing to know about the appraisals, because this comes up all the time, is that we hear people say, well, my bank paid for it or or I don't pay for it, or I never noticed it, is you usually end up, I'd say nine times out of 10, you actually do pay for it. You just don't actually notice it because it usually shows up in your legal bill. Uh, Dean, I think you experienced this recently when, when you went to the lawyer's office, even, you, but you did know, obviously, uh, where you saw that appraisal on the, on the bill. So that's another consideration. Uh, I got a fun one in here. I threw this in to spice it up because it's something that people talk about when we talk about alternative lenders versus shadow lenders. So why don't we just touch on alternative lenders first, if anybody wants to jump into that? Sure. Yeah, I'll take that. So an alternative lender is basically, in a lot of cases, they're actual banks. They, they're just providing alternative lending products that are not, um, not considered your AAA client, uh, friendly product. So, you know, you're not going to get your best interest rates. You're not going to get um, these really flexible terms. They're typically going to be shorter term products meant for clients that are in need of temporary solutions because they're going through maybe credit repair issues, or maybe they, they have income issues where they're self-employed for a short period of time and they don't have a full two-year average or you know maybe they receive a lot of commission income and they just started receiving commission income there's a lot of reasons why somebody would go to an alternative lender but those lenders are typically um, providing solutions for clients that can't get uh, an approval directly from a bank or another what we consider an a lender yeah it makes a lot of sense sorry derek 
No, I mean, you're bang on. I think just referencing that these are banks, right? Everybody gets scared when they hear B or private or alternative, especially when you're referencing B or alternative, like they're actual banks, Canadian Western Bank, which is on the corner in Langley, right? Like they're real institutions that you can walk into. So, um, and they're very, very, very common nowadays, especially in the business world, um, self-employed borrowers, very common. Yeah, and I think the reason that we brought up the the concept of alternative lenders versus shadow lenders is shadow lenders, there, it's just like a term that seems to be misused a lot and misunderstood and confused. I think the concept there, generally speaking, are, are lenders that are not governed nationally um, through OSFI. It's, it's generally speaking, that's what we're looking at and talking about here. But I hear the term thrown around all over the place. And I think people think that uh, monoline lenders, which are just not banks and alternative lenders and private lenders all fall under the same bucket. And it's just very, very different group of lenders and they all have their purpose and reason. And in fact, most of these alternate banks that you're talking about are all regulated as well. Yeah, absolutely. They are following the stress as they're, yeah, they exactly. Yeah, I wish they had it that easy. All right, um, HELOC versus line of credits. So just like traditional line of credit versus HELOC. Dean, you look like you got lots to say about this. Yeah, so I mean, they're basically the same product. They function the same way. They're just typically a home or a HELOC is what we consider a home equity line of credit. And you're usually going to get a larger limit with a home equity line of credit. And you're usually going to get a much better rate. And the reason being is it's secured against your home. You the security of that product is your home. So it's it functions like a mortgage. It's registered on title as a mortgage um, at a certain limit. And you can borrow up to as, you know, typically 65% of the value of your home could be a line of credit in most cases. Um, and you're again, to touch on the rates, you're going to get a far better interest rate with a home equity line of credit versus a line of credit. And I'll let one of you guys take away why that is. Yeah, you're kind of around with the home equity line of credit. Again, it's the security behind it, right? The lender has security for that money that they're lending out. Um, you're typically going to be paying roughly prime plus a half. Right now, that's sitting around 2.95, which is higher than the mortgage interest rates, right? So uh, if you're going into that product, it's good to run a cost scenario to see where it's going to make the most sense and what the, what the uh, interest costs are going to be. Now, the unsecured lines of credit, you're probably going to be looking at anywhere between 4 and 7%. And that's because it's a personal line of credit. There's no security. If you rack up that line of credit and walk away, what is the bank really going to do, right? There's no way for them to come and get their money back. So there's more risk for the bank in that scenario. You typically don't see an unsecured personal line of credit of more than maybe 50 to 75,000. And even that I would say is high. Uh, I mean, and then on the home equity line of credit, we've seen, you know, three, $4 million, depending on the value of the property. Yeah, it's all about security at the end of the day, as you mentioned. So the bank knows that you can't walk away from that money. And that's the key point to consider here. So if you're someone who's looking to invest into the market and buy you know, more real estate, usually you're going to be looking at a home equity line of credit. It's also very important to note that when you're looking to qualify for a mortgage, if you're using the home equity line of credit, your money can go further when it comes to your qualification than the traditional line of credit. All right, so let's move on. Amortize. Oh, did we already talk about amortization versus term? I feel like we did that already. Nope, we didn't. We didn't. All right. Amortization versus term. I get all these mixed up myself. <laughs> all right. Amortization, I'll take it away real quick and I'll, I'll uh, pass it along. Amortization is the length of time the loan is 
basically more or less spread out over uh, uh, to keep your payments low. That's what a lender does to make sure that you're not paying uh, too much money monthly. And now maybe that's not necessarily the reason why, uh, but they do amortize loans anywhere between you know five to 30 years on average. Although there are some exceptions to the mean as far as that's concerned. So it's not how long you're staying with the lender per se, but it's how long the loan is stretched out to, to get your payments that you have at that time. Doesn't mean you can't reduce the amortization. It's just that that's how the loan is set up to keep your payments as they are at that time. Term. Yeah, so term. Term is actually how long you have to stay with that lender. So typically we see five-year terms. Five-year fixed rates or five-year variable rates is usually what we see. Um, but you can get a rate, you can get a term as low as six months. Uh, you can get a term one, two, three, four, five years. And in some cases, we're, we're seeing clients inquire about seven and 10-year products with, with the rates being so low. But yeah, again, the, the biggest uh, difference here from term to amortization is term is how long you have to be there with that institution. And whenever we hear maturity date, maturity date is when that term ends. Yeah, bang on. Just for reference there, you don't necessarily have to stay with that lender. You can pay it out early, but there's going to be a prepayment penalty if you're in a closed mortgage. But yeah, bang on. Awesome. All right, let's keep rocking. Uh, we're looking at uh, short... Okay, so we're going to get into the rental space for a quick second here. Short uh, versus long-term or medium-term rental. And we can go short versus medium versus long, for that matter. And why does it matter uh, to a lender? So, I mean, I think right off the bat, short-term rental is usually a rental situation where someone is staying in the home for, I would say, on average, a maximum of 7 to 14 days. So there's no lease usually signed. It's more almost like a hotel stay, for that matter. Obviously, uh, Airbnb or VRBO are the two that come to mind, vacation rentals, that sort of thing. That's considered a short-term rental. Most lending institutions do not lend based on short-term rental income because it's too variable. Obviously, as you just noticed through uh, the COVID circumstance, it's unreliable. There's no guarantees that the rental income will stay, whereas other forms of rental are much more likely to consider to be to stay in place. Anybody want to take away medium rental? All right, I'll, I'll stay on it. Medium term rental <laughs> is usually looking at month by month. Um, often we see these types of uh, uh, considerations for, by uh, insurance companies. So if someone has a flood in their house or maybe even a fire or something of that nature, we're usually looking at a, a rental period of around maybe uh, three to six months. Uh, also, a lot of companies, they actually do uh, medium term rentals for for uh, business executives or people of that nature where they need to come in to complete a project. Medium term rentals are a little bit of an interesting business. We do have, I know someone who came on an episode a long time ago, not a long time ago, this year earlier, holy cow, uh, Mr. Derek Peaver came on and and he specializes primarily in, in midterm or medium term rental properties. Again, I would say that a lot of lenders still don't love to recognize the medium term because there's no long term leases, but you can you build a little bit more of a business case to run a rental situation like this. And it's actually kind of an interesting sweet spot in the market if you know what you're doing so kudos to Derek for that all right what do you guys take long-term rental yeah long-term is your traditional rental so typically you're signing a, a one-year lease agreement with your tenant I would say a minimum of one-year lease would be considered a long-term rental and that's just your traditional rental agreement uh, BC tenancy uh, the Residential BC Tenancy Act, uh, you can grab their their agreements and that's usually what uh, what a bank is looking for in this case all right, cool. Let's move on. Restrictive versus non-restrictive. This is kind of a term that I wouldn't say we coined the term per se. It's almost like an industry term. It's not something you'll see written out there, 
but it defines a number of factors in a mortgage product. So what's a restricted product versus non-restricted product? What do you guys take this one away from me? So most lenders actually offer a restrictive product and it's usually a much better interest rate. So some of these mortgage companies that market the lowest possible interest rates, it's usually a bit of a bait rate is what they call it. It'll kind of hook you, it catches your eye, it's a phenomenal interest rate, they get you on the phone and then they explain to you that it's not the best mortgage product, right? Um, so some of the restrictions that you see in these products can be no portability, so you can't move the mortgage to a different property if you're going to sell. Sometimes the penalties are dramatically, dramatically higher than a typical mortgage. Um, sometimes there's no prepayment privileges. Uh, there's a lot of different kind of quirks that can really throw a mortgage off. So understanding that and not being so fixated on interest rate can go a long way. I mean, when you think about it, most people are taking these products because they want the lowest cost, right? They want to save the most money with the lowest rate, but they're not thinking long-term. If, you if you're going to break that mortgage in two years and you can't port it and your penalty is 10 times the size that it should be, you did not come out ahead, right? So it's, it's really up to people in our industry, uh, you know, good professional mortgage brokers to explain these products. And at the end of the day, let the clients make the decision, but uh, just informing people. I want to touch on one thing with the restrictor because this has bitten a number of clients in the butt that we've come across and it's that bona fide sales clause where you cannot refinance your mortgage. So we're, we're seeing tons of clients refinance their mortgage right now to get this low interest rate, get into this low interest rate market. And they these clients that are stuck in these bona fide sale clauses, they cannot refinance their their property and go with a different lender. They can only refinance their property and stay with the same lender and go back into another restrictive product. So they're definitely something you wanna be aware of and, and look at very closely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot to it beyond the interest rate and that's what we're here for. All right, my favorite topic of the day. All right, mortgage broker versus mortgage specialist. We're gonna spend a minute or two on this one here. Obviously, it's pretty near and dear to us, but it is uh, very, 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 very commonly mis uh, confused, misunderstood. Um, and we see, unfortunately, people uh, within the industry intentionally uh, confusing people on this piece. So uh, why don't we just talk a little bit about mortgage specialist and define it, and then we can kind of go from there. So a mortgage specialist is typically always somebody that is working for a specific institution, right? I'm just going to use RBC as an example. A mortgage specialist is typically an employee of RBC, but they fund and do mortgages. They can run around and look for their own business and, and work with real estate agents and, and you know get referrals from their family and friends, just like we do. But they're restricted to one institution to actually fund those mortgages, right? Um, so to, to confuse that with a mortgage broker is the biggest challenge because the whole purpose of a mortgage broker is to provide options, right? So a mortgage specialist technically doesn't have the options that a mortgage broker would. Yeah. Well, on that note, we don't necessarily want to discredit anyone here. So we, I should probably just throw that out there. Um, the The big thing that I, I do make very clear when we're talking to people is that a mortgage specialist is not licensed. So they're not governed anywhere other than just their bank. So they don't really get slapped on the wrist. They just get fired if necessary. Whereas a mortgage broker would uh, have their name lambasted everywhere and lose their license. Uh, a mortgage specialist is also um, much more of an incentivized uh, sales individual in this in the perspective that they have to focus on selling their individual product. Again, I don't I don't want this to be a uh, completely general statement because 
all three, uh, three of us know some incredible mortgage specialists who do a fantastic job and uh, we'd love to publicly shout them out, but we'll keep them, uh, their names quiet for privacy reasons. And, and they're great at what they do with their specific institution. But the key, however, is that they can only offer the solution by their one institution. And that is it as a quote unquote mortgage broker. We, that is what we do. We broker your file from you or us in that matter representing you to to a lending institution that makes sense for your needs and while a lot of mortgage brokers operate different types of businesses and the way that they they run and their expertise the key here is is as derek mentioned options solutions and of course advice uh, more importantly the one big thing to jump in there is is to say is that we can operate our business how we want to so we don't have to live within the confines of a sales structure of a bank having to push certain other products or limitations and we don't have any reason to you know offer you an additional uh, credit card or line of credit or anything of that nature however our focus should be in maintaining our relationship and offering you the advice so that you want to come come back and and obviously work with us and recommend other people anyway so that's more about us but I think I kind of defined those pieces. Dean, what do you have to add to that? Yeah, just I'll keep it short. A mortgage broker, to your point, it, we are running a business. We are running our own business and we work for you, the client. A mortgage specialist is an employee of the bank in all cases. They're an employee of the bank and they work for the bank and they work in the best interest of the bank. They're selling a product. The bank is a business and the bank is trying to be profitable in what they do. Everything they do is with the mindset of being profitable. And so they're selling products that are profitable to the bank. And that's that's the biggest thing I think I, every every person getting a mortgage should understand. Yeah. Again, this is not meant to discredit anyone who isn't a broker and anyone who is a specialist. There's some awesome people out there, but knowing your options is absolutely key uh, as a consumer so you know what solutions are available to you. Whew. All right, I am uh, I'm I'm beat here. What do we want to What are we, What are we want to round up the episode? What What were the biggest? I think we went through fifteen or twenty this versus that situations, guys. Like, is there anything after talking through all those that really stands out as as something that maybe is more impactful day to day that maybe you didn't think about until you talked about it? I think the most important piece that we touched on is the pre approval versus pre qualification. So a lot of people, a ton of people have a phone call, like a 15 minute phone call with their bank and they tell them that they're pre-approved. They haven't looked at any documents, they haven't pulled credit, they haven't ran numbers. And these people are running around for weeks, if not months, trying to find their home. And when they finally find the one that they love to find out that they don't qualify because the bank didn't, or the broker didn't do the research and didn't qualify them properly and do a real pre-approval, worst conversation you can ever have, right? It's terrible, very disheartening. So if you're going to go shopping, if you're actually gonna step outside your door and go look at homes, make sure you have a real pre-approval and you've given them all of your paperwork, you've signed an authorization form to have your credit pulled, do everything you can, because it'll shoot you in the foot if you don't. Truth, Dean, what about you, bud? I wouldn't add much more to that. I would totally agree with that. That is the hands down the most important piece I think we talked about. Yeah, all of the above, so much good information. And I, I, I sincerely hope, guys, if you're listening to this episode right now, that, that you learn something that's going to help save you money, reduce your stress, or find some solutions that are better for you that, uh, that you can go forward. So as a reminder, as you're listening to this episode, if you got value, we only ask a few things from anybody listening to the, uh, the show here. Uh, one, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes, a five-star review if you're loving the show. And if you can share it out, that would be even better. We 
we do this. This is our evening time after a 12 hour workday sort of situation. And so definitely let us know if it's impacting you. Uh, a second consideration, if you want to come on board and be one of our Thrive clients, definitely reach out via um, one of our many channels, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. We will organize a consultation call, typically 15 minutes to understand your goals, needs, hopes, and dreams, and see if we're a good fit to support you. And if you are, love to chat with you soon. Over and above that, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.